What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Kelly Scott, drummer for the band Failure. He's also worked with Liquid Jesus, A Perfect Circle, Queens of the Stone Age, Veruca Salt, Pink, James Blunt, Christina Aguilera, Linda Perry, Faith Hill. It's all over the place. And while we've known each other from afar for a little bit, we finally got to meet backstage at a Sunny Day real estate concert recently in LA. So big thanks to William Goldsmith, a friend of the podcast, for facilitating my meeting of one of the coolest dudes out there. Kelly is passionate about almost everything. You put a quarter in Kelly and he just goes, which is amazing for me, makes my job very easy. So there's so much cool insight on this one and we don't shy away from some heavy topics as well. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Kelly Scott about the five records that shaped him into the player he is today. Cheers. Well, so you did just upload a video from you doing uh, the drum rundown at the now defunct RIP Exit Inn. So you've done a video like this, but I've been asking a lot of guests because the Nelson Drum Shop Pro Drum has these grooves of the day. So if you were to walk in one of those shops and they just give you some sticks and they say, Kelly, we're going to we're going to film you for 30 seconds. What would you play? Ooh, uh, I, I would probably either do some weird drum solo like i did on that video that you just saw which i mean it just it made no sense it was total stream of consciousness you can hear like i'm pretty edged out on coffee and trying to set up for that and continue my normal routine of like how the day goes um out on tour for a band like us i I would either just go for that i'm a big fan of like you know turning my insides out or if I was trying to make an impression, I would probably play like some variation of like the Bernard Bonham shuffle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do a version of it where I do, it's essentially like the same kick pattern, the same triplet sticking pattern, but I have this three ghost strokes in a row thing that I do, like in between uh, snare hits. That's pretty cool. It's like my own little weird variation, which you know, Jeff Picaro and John Bonham and like they all have a variation on what's attributed to being Bernard Purdy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm sure somebody played it before Bernard Purdy. <laughs> he likes um, to but, take credit for a lot of things. <laughs> you know, he he was um, when I was growing up in Orlando and first started playing drums. We had this little music store, and there were like three or four drum clinics that I got to see at this like hole in the wall music store in Orlando, Florida. And he was one of them. I was probably about 12 or 13, had no idea who he was because I was like listening to Motley Crue and Iron Maiden and, you know, all this just white kid rock stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, although my dad listened to tons of Motown, I'd certainly had heard him. I just didn't know yeah. it was him. Um, but you're right. He, he literally during his clinic, you know, because nobody could like hold him to it was like, I remember him saying, oh, I played on Pink Floyd stuff and Beatles stuff. And like, it was just really weird that of all of the like thousands of things that you've played on that are mind blowing, that there's like, you know, hundreds of things that you said you played on that you probably did. Like it never, that kind of stuff doesn't compute. Like how big does the legend need to be? Exactly. It, it does. It makes sense if you take the player out of it and just a person thing. Yeah. Um, as I am, I am not enough mm. is the driving force behind like 99% of the planet. Um, <laughs> and I know from, ex- can't see. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I know from experience, like looking back, like one of the main reasons I chose to play music wasn't because I was good at it. It, it filled this hole inside of me. You know, and made me feel more complete or or better than I was without it. It's it's that thing that you chase after like the whole rest of your life mm-hmm. um, in hopes of being able to reconcile like drums is what I do. And being a person is this totally other thing that I need to address on its own. Yeah. Wow. Everyone write write that down. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I grapple with that every day. Um, going in, we kind of talked about this before you pushed record. So when I sent you the five, when you did finally figure out exactly kind of the format of the show, what was your mindset in how you compartmentalized these five? Well, I, I, I wanted to basically go back to where I started and I, I think almost edited it, but I think I put ACDC first and then kiss. Mm-hmm. In, in the arc of my music career, Kiss would have definitely been the inception of all of it, like as a child, banging pots and pans. But on my playing, Phil Rudd, ACDC was definitely like that pivotal moment where I connected with something. I had a drum set and I learned the basics of everything I would do for the next 40 years. And then, you know, I think I put Bonham on there later you know, there were moments where, like, I had this older brother that, you know, would bring his friends out. He'd, he'd like, cherry pick a really cool song for me to learn. And then he'd bring his older, he was older than me, he'd bring his friends over and, like, kind of show me off, like, his little pet, his <laughs> yeah. little toy. Yeah. Like, look at my brother's working on this week. You know, one week would be, like, Roundabout. Another week would be, like, a Rush song or uh, Led Zeppelin, The Rover. Yeah. Um, you know, but just not even really understanding what it was that I was playing mm-hmm. or playing it like correctly, the feeling of it, the underlying, like what made it so cool. Yeah. Um, below like the notes on a page, I wouldn't figure that out and like start getting into and and being in tune with that until like much later. 
So the order I saw, I, I put in there as probably my personal development and where those drummers sort of came into play. Yeah, talking about ACDC, which is your first one. Uh, I remember ACDC Live from, I believe, 1992 was I wore that CD out. But yeah, your first choice is Highway to Hell. The release here is 1979. The artist is, of course, ACDC. The song, and I tell my audience, um, I just asked you to pick a song, but the the main thing is the record. But the song choice I force you to pick is is Walk All Over You. And of course, the drummer, yes. like you said, is Phil Rudd. So take it away, and then we'll listen to a little bit of Walk All Over You. Um, well, I chose this song because I remember having like the most difficult time figuring out what the hell of the timing was in the intro of the song. Like it just, I remember it taking me forever and I remember getting mad and throwing things and kicking things over and like just being so, so upset, which would become a theme for me. Like even to this day when I'm learning something and it's difficult, as soon as I get angry, it becomes a lot easier. I don't know why. I do not know why when my back is pressed up against a wall, like something just clicks. I mean, that's where it started with that song. Although I remember I first got my drum set. I was 12 years old. It was Christmas. And I had this little weird getup that I was used to wear every time I played like baseball pants and this weird mink that I would wear around me with like a cutoff t-shirt. Okay. Love kind it. of like Eric Carr from Kiss. It yeah. was definitely a Kiss outfit. Yeah. Um, and my older brother gave me his copy of Highway to Hell. He didn't know why or understand like how significant that would be as a drummer starting out. Um, it was just divine intervention. He could have given me any record, but he gave me that record. And that to me is still one that I suggest to this day. Anyone starting out, they're just normal basic beats. It's really easy to pick out which drums he's playing. The symbol patterns, like it's super, super easy. But then you have a walk all over you, which as a beginner, like is it's a pretty complex arrangement of like fills in the beginning of the song. Go ahead and play the song. And then I have another story. Actually, I'll come back to when when you've played it. Sure, sure. Here you go. Here's walk all over you. took me a week. (laughs) And laying back, I was laying back so nicely. Take a chance with me 
Is this still Bon Scott? Yeah. It was his last record. How cool did you feel that you had the same last name as one of the most iconic voices in rock history? Well, actually, Bon Scott was my what would become my future rock name because Scott is actually my first name. Oh, did not know yeah. that. Um, I created this whole alter ego. I was really into Cheap Trick and I loved Robin Zander, like that girl could be for a boy also name so i came up with kelly and scott and i started like creating that autograph in seventh grade and it just kind of stuck with me since you know i've I've sort of reconciled like again back to as i am i'm not enough you know i had to create this alternative uh, perception of myself for myself and subsequently for other people and I oftentimes go back, like as an adult, like, I don't know, really? Should I just go back and, you know, start using my real name? But then, I mean, I have way too much invested in it now. It's like, you know, 30 years later. But how fucking heavy is that? No fills, like, no syncopation, no, like, letting everybody do whatever they're doing. And he's just plowing right through it. But a common thing for me now, and it's funny, I actually just realized it. When it hit that halftime part, I love to cut time and go into halftime to set things up or even just take the steam out of stuff and get like really big and slow, which I mean, it's all over the failure records. Yep. Um, I mean, there's a reason that that song Walk All Over You is like one of my favorite ACDC songs. Mm -hmm. Like he did that so well. It was so heavy when he went to that halftime. I mean, it's funny because I say like this record was so pivotal for me. And I, I thought as a young adult that I knew it inside and out and then moved on to other stuff that seemed more complex to me. But I when I was uh, I think I was like 18. I was in this band Liquid Jesus. This is the after story. So I'm doing my very first record ever. I've moved out to L.A. Uh, and I'm in this band where there are two drummers. There's me, who's like the young hot shot, you know, with all the fills and energy doing all these live gigs. But before I entered, they had like a professional guy who was doing their recordings and demos, John Mola, who at the time was Bruce Hornsby's drummer. And now, I mean, he's played with everybody. He's like a fantastic session guy, fantastic drummer. So I was always in this position of competing with this guy who was like, you know, in his 20 years older than me. He was, I believe, in like his mid, maybe late 30s. Even though he probably seemed a lot older, I don't think he actually was. But he just, he knew what a drummer was, knew the role of a drummer, knew how to play a song. 
I knew how to get like noticed and try and steal all the attention. Like that's what I was really good at up until that point, which was very useful because it got me noticed and I met musicians and people asked me to play with them. And so it was kind of a double-edged sword. So we're doing this record with Michael Beinhorn of all people, you know, we did pre-production and everything and we go up to record the record and John has already done half the record and I'm supposed to do half the record. And we start recording a song and around dinner time, Michael pulls me aside. It's like a Friday. And he's like, you're fantastic. Like I can't as young as you are and like where you're at, but like all that stuff you're doing, that's super cool to you and people watching the band live. Like, you can't do that on a record. Like, that's not what recording a record is about. And he literally, I couldn't believe this, was like, I'm going to have the guys take your drums up to the bungalow. We were staying at Indigo Ranch where you like kind of stay up there and write and record um, until you're done. And he's like, I'm going to have the guys take a drum set up there and you're going to sit down all weekend with this record. And he fucking handed me Highway to Hell. I was like, oh, yeah, I know this record inside. And he's like, no, you don't. You don't know what you think you know, or you'd be doing it. When you listen to those drums, if there was an imaginary finish line, the kick drum would be the first thing across. That's how that guy can play so basic and make everyone move every single time for the last 30 years. That's why you can get away with playing the same basic beat with a slight variation for 30 years because he makes you move every single time. And that's all that's required of a drummer. I'm not gonna say like, oh, it connected with me and I had this aha moment. Uh, I was supposed to play on five songs, I got four of them. Uh, which at the time, you know, I considered a failure. Looking back, like it was a huge success given the talent that I was up against. And, you know, Michael Beinhorn doesn't, he doesn't care about me. He doesn't care. he wants to make a great fucking record, bottom line. Yep. However he gets to that point is how he gets to that point. And kudos to him. I've heard stories since. Like, he gave me a fighting chance. And he actually started me, like, full stop on my career. I don't, I don't know if I would still be doing this if someone like Michael Beinhorn hadn't intervened at such, like, a, a young, early stage in my, like, professional living in L.A., trying to do this thing, you know, for a living. He, he certainly like put me on the tracks that I needed to be on if I was going to continue down the road to being here like 40 years later. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We got to acknowledge those people. And, uh, no, and I have told him as much, I reach out to him on Facebook and the weird thing, like they're making this failure documentary and like Michael Beinhorn's in it. The world is just a full circle. The planets travel in a circle and so do we. And that's why everything's a full circle. It's nature. Hey, y'all. I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. 
and, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful. And he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye well, that's an amazing first pick. Uh, I'm really happy that we uh, we got that one in. So number two, the word you already mentioned it is Rush. The album is All the World's a Stage. Release year is 1976. Actually, came out a few years before Highway to Hell. But uh, the song choice is 2000 or 2112 Overture. Yeah, and yeah. the drummer's Neil Peart. So uh, yeah, take it away. Um, again, like this, literally, I went from Highway to Hell to all the world's a stage. My brother introduced another record and was like, if you're gonna be the bomb, like you gotta know how to play this stuff. Like Neil Peart is the greatest drummer around. And moving pictures, he didn't give me moving pictures probably because he couldn't even consider parting with that record because <laughs> yeah. it had just come out and it was the rave and like for me still their best record. Like they were, on their game what every every member collectively did on that record was like pure genius perfect amount of notes like felt great the songs were great like there was no fluff uh, and it's i mean it's a 40 minute record uh it's it was an absolutely perfect record but back to all the world stage so he gives me this record and you know 2112 again was another one of those things where it kind of like walk all over you like it unlocked this thing where time wasn't like this this thing that you had to adhere to like you could cut time and you could play against time and you could play over time and you know it was just this pulse that was going underneath everything but you didn't have to only play that uh, and that's where neil pert was like really pivotal in all of a sudden this whole world opened up into Drums are no longer just this thing that you bang on that make a lot of racket. They're actually really musical. Like you could hear the melody of what he was playing, especially with the bass parts. And that really opened up a thing for me, like learning the basics and then having this whole, like, here's all the color that you can fill in there wherever you want. However you feel is like best to express yourself. You can do anything. The contrast was eventually I would learn to find my voice somewhere in the middle of both of those things. Not too basic, but not too like just crazy. Although I love syncopation and being musical and playing 
would sing her sometimes and other musical parts. I feel most of the time I find a good balance in between those two things that are constantly pulling on me uh, when I react and and write. It took me close to a month to like, you know, play this. I wasn't really playing. And again, I had that extra snare that I took the bottom off. Oh, nice. And tightened up and put up here on a snare stand so I could go, you know, because sure. I was playing like a little four piece uh, gasket, Ludwig pink champagne, 69 pink champagne kit that my parents had gotten for me for like 250 bucks. Do you still from... have it? No, I'll, no. I'll save that story for <laughs> after this. Oh man, I'm sorry to bring well, it up. Well, I, I do, I do, and I don't. Oh, I see. I do, and I don't. So we'll we'll get into that story after after some 2112. Yeah. All right. Here's 2112. We'd like to do for you side one from our latest album. <laughs> side one. Jesus. Twelve. <laughs> And the crowd is so quiet. Like you never hear another live record like that, where they're just in such awe in the palm of their hand. I thought that echo, the drums were playing it too. So I used to try and go da 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 yeah. da 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 and play along with it. Such a fantastic composition that you don't regularly hear in rock. Like only crazy jazz people mm -hmm. write like a song for a full side. 
like it's just unheard of in rock and especially at that time like they really man they were on their game and just doing something that was completely unto themselves yeah and there are some people that don't like getty's voice he's not doing a lot on this song so maybe you can listen to this one <laughs> you know it's it, it's definitely a matter of taste mm -hmm. but you know whether you like it or not like it's not a bad voice sure I mean, he has a fantastic voice with a great range. He's constantly singing a key, has wonderful pitch, mm -hmm. um, great phrasing. I mean, it's insane that he is able to emote so much considering he didn't even write what he's singing about, the drummer did. Like, he really makes all of those lyrics that aren't his very personal in the same way that, like, most singers have to write their stuff because they just couldn't possibly sing someone else's, you know, it's... It's crazy the dynamic of that band mm -hmm. um, and, and how it all worked. And I mean, it's just that song is the perfect example of like, if you can learn to play something like that, like you, you've gone up a few skill levels from a beginner uh, because there's just so many lessons there and so many things that you have to know how to do in order to like have a professional career playing more than just one thing. So back to the Ludwig story. So in, I guess it was probably 1984, 1985, I was really into like early Def Leppard and Rick Allen was constantly pushing Ludwig rockers in all the drum magazines. So I took this drum set. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know any drum people or, you know, there was no one to tell me like, hold on to that drum set. That's going to be worth a lot of money someday. Um, and it was immaculate. It was like 12, 16, 22 with the post coming out. All the symbols were pasty Ludwig symbols with all original uh, lowrider bass hardware. Like it was a killer, killer kit. And it was pink champagne, which I think that was the last year that they made that original color. Uh, it was like 68, 69. And my parents got it for $250. Uh, from some jazz guy that like lived, you know, maybe 20 minutes from us. And it showed up like under the tree or next to the tree at Christmas. During the pandemic, I wound up buying two uh, uh, 65 Ludwigs, one a pink champagne and one a blue sparkle to like relive that moment. And I wound up giving the pink champagne one to uh, uh, Greg, who's in failure, his kid, Aldous has really i bought him a drum set really early on and he's like really taken a liking to it and it's just jamming all the time and getting better every single day so i gave him the drum set for his last birthday his fifth birthday and i took uh, uh i wound up getting him a 14 floor tom and i took the 16 from that and had it rewrapped in blue sparkle so i still have a 12 13 14 16 22 blue sparkle all right, so yeah. number three, the album is Destroyer. Here we go. Here's some kiss for you, guys. The release here's 1976, same year as All the World's a Stage. And the artist is, of course, Kiss. The, yes. the drummer for this record is Peter Chris, And then, yeah, the song choice is Flaming Youth. So take it away. So, well, for this one, I would have definitely, in 1976, had been playing Pots and Pans, uh, and jamming in my room with only like a lamp. So it felt like I was playing live. <laughs> yes. um, and I was playing with Lincoln Logs and Pots and Pans. And this is, I mean, essentially what got me started. 
And it wasn't necessarily Peter Chris, although going back and listening to some of the stuff he played, like what a wicked style he had, like really unorthodox and not easy stuff to play, especially when you consider that he was constantly touring and making records, full records twice a year. He was having to write parts and record for like 20, 25 songs a year while constantly touring. While constantly being the biggest rock star in the world and like sleeping with models and doing tons of drugs and which, you know, obviously I didn't know anything about in 1976. I was, uh, I hope was I in 76? I was seven. Um, and my older brother had given me all of his Kiss 8-tracks. And my parents for my birthday brought me like an 8-track stereo where it was like a standalone 8-track unit with two speakers. And I had all the Kiss albums on 8-track. And I used to come straight home from school every single day, every moment I had. And I would like kind of dress up like a member of Kiss and I would put on these like fake concerts mm -hmm. for myself, like while watching myself in the mirror. Yep. I did the mirror thing too. And, yep. Yeah. Well, I also did like, you, you remember I would go to the dentist twice a year and they would give you those red pills that you would chew on and they would show if you still had plaque on your teeth. After oh, you yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I would use those for blood. <laughs> but they would leave stains that it took like a couple days to get out. So I had to move to red Kool-Aid. So there were always like these huge puddles of red Kool-Aid all over like our shag carpet in my room, uh -huh. which was kind of disgusting looking back. Uh, and I also would steal my sister's Aquanet hairspray and I would get a lighter from my mom who everyone in my house was a smoker. Uh, I would light the lighter and turn sideways so I could kind of see myself from a reflection, and I would blow fire. I would go, ah, <laughs> and it would look like fire was actually coming out of my mouth, and which is insanity that I almost <laughs> burned down my house every single day for years. Dude, you got to do what you um, got to do. You know, it, my parents just, they you talk about, like, do you know what your children are doing? Uh, I mean, that's what I was up to. Like, I literally could have made us homeless any day. I would air drum in my room upstairs, and my mom would, like, come up and be... She could hear me, like, just my feet would be moving and stuff. Yeah. And looking in the mirror, because I wanted to get look cool, and she'd always be like, can you just stop air drumming after 10 p.m.? It was a thing. Um, yeah, I can totally yeah. relate. Yeah, I, I had that artificial time also when I eventually got drums, and I would just put uh, um, towels over top of them and my parents eventually like moved me to the, the uh there was an addition onto our house that was turned into my bedroom in like middle junior high era eighth grade or so wow lucky. um yeah they were my my parents were extremely supportive um because i mean it it, it like kept me out of trouble it kept me off the streets man yep. you know <laughs> and i had an older brother and sister that were like you know, they they caused my parents a lot of problems and grief, something of which I didn't get into until I left home um, and was on my own. And, you know, I was allowed to make my own mistakes. Yeah, because there was only me to pay for them. Uh, but my brother and sister did that in reverse. Speaking of uh, youth and rebellion, here's flaming youth. Here we go. Yes. <laughs> Hate the things I do 
there's such uh, I mean, yeah, it's simple. And they were trying to sell records and it was this thing which they were the first to do. Like the machine of selling kiss stuff was fucking ridiculous. And it still has never been done to that level. Like pure marketing genius. They should get like awards just for that. Were they ever on Scooby-Doo? I feel like they yes. should. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, they were. They yeah. were. Um, and Phantom of the Park. Like I literally stayed home from Halloween trick-or-treating to watch their movie. Yeah. Like that's how powerful they were. Um, but even like just listening to that, like the drums are so like he's just creating this cool bed of rhythm and the music. There, there's all this movement, Gene Simmons bass parts. Like he's letting the music be the impetus for the the energy of the song. Like it's pretty amazing what he did. I don't know if he did that on purpose, if he was insightful in that way, or he was just like trying to like get this record done really quick because they probably recorded all these songs in a day. Um, you know, whether he heard the demo tapes first, I mean, only he knows, but I'm sure a lot of it was like, okay, we're going in the studio. Like, let's, let's get through this so we can continue to tour and keep product out and moving. I think they each made $24 million that year, which in today's standard is, I mean, probably a billion dollars. There's nothing more ins inspiring than deadlines. So if I know I only have certain amount, yeah. kind of like you saying when you're pushed up against a wall, you're more creative. Maybe that's why his parts are so perfect. So he's like, your brain's like, you got to do this, man. <laughs> Dude, I, I, everything in failure is about a deadline. Yep. Anytime we decide, okay, we're doing this. Okay, we're doing that. There's always a deadline. The drums are always done like in a day or two, but I get to hear demos and, and like write stuff and do my own personal pre-production for weeks sometimes. And the same for tour, like everything, like we have a timeline, we're going to start this project and it's going to be done by this time. Uh, and we're really good at sticking to deadlines. Well, hey, if it works, don't, don't fix it. So, well, yeah. And I mean, I think it does, it, it kind of gets rid of, I think, the worst part of everyone. Like, you don't get to procrastinate. You don't like when you have this artificial deadline, like this stopping point, you know, you kind of have to get on it and see yourself through to the end of it uh, because it's going to come out regardless of whether you've done the work or not. You know, it's in your best interest for posterity to be able to enjoy all of your records when you're done with them. Yeah, it's weird. Sometimes when I am my most overwhelmed when it comes to workload and stressed about getting things done and I get them done on time, when I look back, I'm like, I actually was pretty happy because I was in the thick of it. You feel like you're being, like you're part of it all, whatever it all means, but you're just like, I'm doing it. And it is inspiring. You are happy whether you yeah. realize it or not. But again, trying to, fill that void. Maybe it's because I don't have time to think about the void. So I'm just so overworked, but yeah, I, well, agree. I, I, I think there's also something about drums. Like there's always this, uh, like, especially live when people see you and you talk to them, like afterwards, you're backstage or whatever, chatting with people. And they're like, God, it looks like you're having so much fun. And it's like, no, <laughs> like I, I mean, in all honesty, like, no, like I am in such a st deep state of like anguish and focus and like just trying to be perfect for the first time in my life. 
you know, and it's a very, it's, it's definitely not fun. What's fun is afterwards when you can look back at it and you can give yourself a pat on the back for all the moments where like you were the best you could be that night and maybe a little better than the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the fun moments. The fun is when it's over, you know, and you're, you're not cringing at the results. And I, I mean, maybe there is this like sick, like people who like to get beat or domineered or thing in there where maybe you're getting a sick sense of enjoyment, beating yourself up and creating all that internal pressure and forcing yourself to be a certain way and so hyper focused and singular in in what you're doing you know i i don't know it's it's painful it's really really like your head squeezed and i'm happy that i don't live the other 23 hours that way but also there's also this state of nothing else in the world exists like who you are as a person and everything you have to do every day from, you know, building the right personality to paying bills, to saying the right thing, to doing the right thing, addressing the right way, you know, getting to work without wrecking your car, all of that stuff that it takes to be you goes away. Like that just disappears in one sense. It's like the eye of a hurricane, but in the other sense, you're also in the hurricane it's crazy it's really really crazy and i've i've only found like playing music where something like that exists for me wow i mean that's very well worded and i i'm I'm gonna butcher this quote but this also extends to other creative people as well i think tina fey says something to the effect of the best part about being a writer is when you're finished writing so i think a lot of people agree with you yeah Maybe the best part of being anything is when you're finished being it. (laughs) (laughs) That is a beast of a vape, by the way. How long have you had that thing? That's like those old school, like R2-D2 ones. Check this out. So I I stopped smoking. I had to stop smoking because I'm I'm like, just the physicality of playing and touring was like really catching up. It would take me weeks to get back in shape to where I wasn't just like, felt like I was going to die. Because I mean, I've been a professional smoker since I was about 12. You know, I really loved doing it, and I went all the way with it. I was smoking, like, palm oil non-filters for most of my career. And then in around, I think, 2012, 2011, someone gave me one of those original e-cigarettes. Yeah. And that really got me off of smoking cigarettes. Um, and then I started to get into, like, I had problems with those because you you – they had problems. They would break down or you couldn't get filters or I, I got tired of like not being able to have my fix whenever and wherever I wanted. Uh, so I started to get into some of these guys, uh, which were way more dependable. And I would have two of them and several tanks. So if anything ever went down, I had a replacement. Um, and I slowly started bringing the nicotine level down over the years to uh, over the last two months, I'm down to zero. Mm, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So now I'm just getting over the, I have this internal dialogue every time I hit it now where I'm saying, you look like an idiot and (laughs) whatever internal stress you're perceiving that you think sucking on this is relieving. It's not doing that anymore because there's no longer nicotine in it. It's no longer like you're doing it on your own. So I'm I'm slowly taking the the training wheels are off. (laughs) 
so hopefully, you know, this this time, like next year, you'll see me completely vapeless. And maybe, I don't know, I'll be chewing red vines or something else, toothpicks with cinnamon on them. Do you do you keep it the big one? Like I think you mentioned it, but do you keep the big one just so you're reminded that hey, this is silly looking? No, no, it's still it's still all about maximum delivery. Okay, like it's got a really big tank on it. Like the battery lasts a long time. I mean, it's all about maximum delivery. It never wavers. I'm I love consistency. Well. Let's let's get back to Clive Burr. I am in no way upset that we went down that rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, so prisoner, uh, Clive Burr, number of Clive, the beast. Clive Burr would be. Um, I chose this. It it wasn't uh, an influence from a parent or a sibling or somebody else. I I remember seeing this kid in junior high wearing an Iron Maiden shirt and going, "Whoa, what the hell is that?" Yeah. That looks evil as shit. Mm-hmm. And then like searching it out and finding Number of the Beast and just being instantly riveted. Um, it had the right amount of... It was kind of like that thing I was talking about earlier where he sat in between the Neil Perts and the Phil Rudds. Like he had a lot of the really cool basics, uh, but he also had like his right hand was super fast with these like 16th notes that sounded like he was doubling up um, and great, like musical long Tom fills. And he always like locked the music down. Sometimes he played with the music. A lot of times he stayed out of the way of the music. And he, I mean, he just had a great energy and swagger about him. Um, He was very understated as a person, or at least that was my perception. I later would find out that like a lot of us, Um, He had a lot of um, things going on inside of him that were about to take him over and start to ruin things for him. Uh, Prisoner, especially. Like, I love, like, you can see there's a theme in all of these songs that I picked. They're like these amazing drum intros where you're immediately, like, you're transfixed onto the drummer and everybody else just kind of becomes part of the scene but you never take your eyes off of the drums in the middle. Um, and most of like the my favorite songs of all time are the ones that start you off in that place. Because in my mind, like no shade to all the other musicians that have made me a far better drummer than I probably would be, the drums are still the most important thing in a band, period. If you have a bad drummer, you have a bad band. Any other guy can be bad in the band and you can still have a great band, but not a drummer. Full stop. I am not a number. I am a free man.
so cool. Yeah. He, his style reminds me of another drummer that was like that was uh, Dave Holland from Priest. Mm. Like that, that wave of English metal, like a lot of those drummers shared the same sensibility, I think, because they were kind of coming out of punk rock. You know, and they were sort of like a, a, a reaction away from the meanderingness of like the Genesis and that all that prog rock that kind of played complex stuff, but very lightly. Mm-hmm. Like these guys were making a, a hybrid of that prog with punk rock. So it was all played with force and like a momentum. You know, of course, you would have to play like that if you're wearing black leather and spikes. <laughs> yeah. But he just his again, like his his sensibility. And, you know, I, I don't know, because like this is pretty young in his career. I, I can only speak for myself, but I don't remember having an inner dialogue and really like. Conceptualizing or being purposeful about arranging my notes until like probably the latter half of my drum career. I remember like most of the stuff I did in the first 20 years was just like a simple, innate, unconscious reaction to whatever I was playing. Um, you know, there, there were certain things I was conscious of, like, oh, here's a build and, you know, going from really small and getting the most out of it. Or, you know, my fills into the chorus being, you know, dat, don't, don't for the first one and da, 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 da for the second one and for the third one, like always creating a sense of building through the song. But like just listening to his song, like the purposefulness of like letting again, like those first up hits go by because the bass is like carrying this cool movement so well, but then accentuating the second one, which is no different than the first one he let go by, you know, or dropping the snare before that third accent that we were talking about. Like it just makes that third one, the end of the line so much more impactful and so much more like a exclamation, like a statement. And now we're going to start all over again. Statement, start all over again. Statement, like it was very beautifully done. And I, I always wondered about like some of my favorite drummers, like do they have a dialogue or mm -hmm. are they just, they love playing music because they get to get rid of that and just react to what they're playing. Yeah. And they become really, really good at it over time. And it's just a part of their personality. Yeah, I always wonder that too. Is it deliberate or instinctual? Who knows? Yeah, and, well, you know that there are certain drummers who think about everything they play. Like you can feel it and they kind of admit to it in the way they talk um, about themselves. And there's just a certain feeling that like Neil Peart has when he plays and Danny Carey has when he plays that, you know, a guy like Clive Burt or even uh, Jeff Picaro who straddles the fence of like he's so good and so in control of all of his faculties and all of his knowledge of the instrument that he can just react to things and be really simple and in the moment. Yeah. And I will say too, or you were talking about logos of, of uh, Iron Maiden just looking so cool. And then of course, bringing up Jewish priest, but nowadays kids can just like, if you hear a band, you can just Google them or I'm sure their Spotify or Apple has a picture of the band usually. But back then all you knew of Iron Maiden was the logo and the shirts of the, yeah all the characters on it sometimes and it's just like it was so important back then what your aesthetic was outside of just what you looked like 
yeah. um, that is kind of lost a little bit now. But yeah, so important when you saw those logos. Well, and, and also, like, there's something to be said about, like, back then, we not having the internet, there was all, like, there was so much mystery mm-hmm. about the bands that you were listening to, which when you listen to those records, you were drawn into it so much further, you know, because you got to build this, like, narrative, like a, a um, like a fantasy story that this audio was wrapped up in that was like only you, like you were the narrator. So it was this personal story to you. Um, and that's what it was. There was no information or nothing that could convince you otherwise, because there was no counter narrative to your own. You know, it was like really, really beautiful. And I think that experience isn't lost to everyone, but it's lost to a lot of people because there is so much information today. Yep. All right, so you did kind of bring up this song at the very beginning, so I'm happy we're getting to it, but the album is In Through the Outdoor. The release here is 1979. The artist is Led Zeppelin. Song choice is Fool in the Rain. And, of course, uh, you put his middle name, John Henry Bonham. Henry Bonham, yeah. yeah. I uh, This record, actually, both my brother and my father had. I was into Led Zeppelin like when I was younger because both of them were into Led Zeppelin. Um, but I didn't quite understand the impact of a uh, John Bonham, a uh, John Henry Bonham on on the arc of drums, especially and modern music, but especially drums and their part that they play in modern mm-hmm. music from then on out. So I kind of dabbled with, like I mentioned earlier, like my brother made me learn the intro to the rover, you know, and I would like kind of show it off for some of his friends but never that was like right at the phase where I was starting to become my own sentient being and individual and was choosing my own stuff to get into and to exploit uh, and just sort of build my own musical language. You know, I think it's that thing like I, I was uh, the I don't know the quote directly. I'll butcher it. The pupil outgrew the master, which, mm-hmm. you know, before that would have been my older brother, because he did turn me on to a lot of really, really great stuff and definitely gave me a greater sense of importance like for choosing this thing and really putting everything I had into it and having the dream of this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life at 12. Like what 12 year old knows what he's going to do forever, you know? And then in the face of it at 22, knowing you're never going to make a living, deciding that you love it so much that you're going to do it despite killing yourself um, and never being able to have all those things that everybody else gets, like stability and girlfriends and apartments and being able to say, I'm going to do this at this time and sticking to it. You know, all that goes out the window because your first drug of choice is like this dream and everything plays second fiddle to that. But I, I digress. So back, back to Bonham, like later on, uh, when I moved to L.A., I would have uh, uh, this first band I was talking about earlier, Liquid Jesus. Like they literally, uh, I was in this other band, a couple guys that I moved from Florida with. This was in like 1987, 88. And we would do a lot of gigs with these guys. And it turned out they also lived in my apartment building. Uh, And they had John Molo, but they needed a drummer because they were playing sometimes three, four times a week. Um, And John wasn't going to be able to do that. So they were looking, actively looking for a drummer. And one night I was hanging out with them and uh, I was like, so what kind of drummer are you looking for? And they were like, someone like you. And I literally remember going to my band the next day and 
I was like, I'm going to play in both bands. And they were like, no, you're not. And I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We just moved 3,000 miles for me to become rich and famous. And you're going to give me an ultimatum? So I wound up leaving that band and wound up playing with Liquid Jesus, um, made my first couple records with them. And, you know, that sort of would catapult my lack of a career into a career many years later. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, being in this band and like really wanting to work hard and feel like I was as impressive and talented as everybody else in the band, I would spend hours and hours and hours in the garage just playing along to Zeppelin records and would completely get lost in it. And I, I, at the time, I still didn't fully understand kind of like the Phil Rudd thing, uh, what it was that I was actually hearing or feeling like where the beats are on the timeline and the movement and, you know, how this band, like everyone plays together. There's no click tracks. And, but I did understand the sensibility and the space, like allowing space in music um, would be something like a, a skill that I would take directly from there and make a part of uh, what I do today like with the Phil Rudd stuff and the Neil Peart stuff and definitely the John Bonham stuff. You know, I said Fool in the Rain would later become like, to me, I think that is the most complex thing I know how to play. And whenever I sit down on a drum set and I start playing that beat, it's not one of those beats that you can kind of fuck around with. Like you have to be so centered in yourself. Like it's a good litmus as to what's going on inside of you. Yep. Because you have to be in such control and such a relaxed state in order to play it perfectly laid back, not rushing anything, just like fluid, like Chevy Chase said it great, be the ball. Like you have to be the ball when you're playing that beat. And if you're not, you immediately know it. Like immediately, you cannot fake playing that beat. Um, and the only drum lesson I ever took was with... Uh, um, it was kind of, it was a drum lesson, but it was more like I met this guy and he thought I was cool and had something and wanted to share his knowledge and time with me. It was Mark Cranny, who was Jethro Tull's drummer for a little while. You remember that old Aqualung video, the left-handed drummer? Mm -hmm. uh, but he was also Gino Vanelli's drummer for a long time. And I mean, he did a ton of shit. He was a master, but he invited me out to his house and he had two drum sets set up. He was a lefty and had a right-handed setup, so they were looking at each other. And when I saw him play that, like I couldn't figure it out, but when I saw him play it, it was like looking in a mirror and it instantly was like, oh, fuck, okay. Yeah, that, wow, that sounds so much more complex than it is. And that kind of put me on the road to not only learning to play that beat correctly and then the different iterations of it, the Picaro iteration, the Bonham iteration with the hi-hat grabs and then the many bernard purdy like he's used that beat so many times in his career but also like kind of putting my own thing onto it like a little subtle thing if you were a drummer you would notice it but i don't think in uh you know 1990 if i was listening to someone play my beat then i wouldn't go oh whoa he's putting like three really quick ghost notes in there like his triplets becoming a weird quad, I guess. What What is that? Yeah. Um, there's also, as I'm sure people have 
If you're a drummer, you probably looked this up on YouTube. There's the solo drum take or the solo drum track of this where he kind of starts off and he, you could tell he's just in a mood when he's playing this song and then he starts over again, counts it off. It's really fun. But yeah. this is the, uh, yeah, Fool in the Rain. This is the, the track. That space that starts at that last there. So good. Everyone go listen to the whole song because then there's a whole B section that changes tempos. Oh, and it's, the yeah. bridge is nuts with all the timbali overdubs. Yep. And, yeah. See, to me, I, I know, like, historically for the band, like, the wheels had fallen off for them at this point. Um, John Paul Jones produced this record. Like, he had to take control because Jimmy was just, like, he was at his end. He was too succumb to his addictions and, like, things were really crazy for him. Which I, I think is why this record is so strong. Like John Paul Jones really just focused on the basics and didn't get caught in all the minutiae, the 30 guitar parts and trying to create like this opus. He created a really slick pop record or their version of a pop record. And every note matters and is perfect. And I just think they're playing as a band and unconsciously knowing the relationship between none like that space like you can't talk about that like that's just something you know when you start playing that song and everyone hears and feels that for the first time they just keep doing it every single time and it becomes like this this hook that no one can ever put their finger on it's beautiful well i do have a hard out in about three minutes but i do want to give you the opportunity yeah. to do so <laughs> to do i should some... have warned you i talk man no you get i love it and i will talk we'll do you know what to be continued i love it i, I love if it. you have guests back but when you <laughs> I... when you have a hole in your schedule like hit me up anytime and we'll do a part two well real quick for people do you have because this will be coming out in the next few weeks yeah um anything you do want to hit people too um that you will be doing for the rest of the year um you know uh, uh, uh failure stuff where we're like just finishing a few things um a concert film and a double record of the concert film um we're taking most of this year to finish a, a documentary that's been uh it was being done by some people for like most of the year and it kind of floundered during the pandemic and we have since 
gained all the footage um, and Ken has been helming the project um, and editing some stuff. So that's we're going to work on that this year. Maybe some new stuff at the end of the year. And I am just continuing to do I do my sessions like if you're on social media, hit me up at Kelly Scott, like Instagram or Facebook. I'm doing sessions for people. Just submit tracks, beginner, advanced. I don't care. I'm doing mm-hmm. it super cheap. So it gives me a, a chance to like give back. Like I've been given so much. So I, I want to make this accessible to like the 12 year old me, as well as like, you know, anybody else, professionals, whatever. It's your chance to get me to play on your shit, like really cheap. Like any other time, if you called me up and said, Hey, you want to play on my record? You know, you'd have to spend some money doing it. But this, this, I'm doing like a base rate for anyone and everyone. And honestly, like um, the best time of my life, like I'm getting to be just so creative and it just a constant reminder, like how amazing like my life is and how like, you know, much the universe loves me. Hell yeah, man. Well, everyone loves you. You're an amazing drummer. And Chris, by the way, I told him I was hopping on the phone with you, Chris Mazzarisi. Yeah. And uh, he's, yeah, dude, he said he misses you. And he was reminded, he's like, dude, I have to have a catch up call with Kelly. So, um, you will be having that soon, but, uh, he sends his, his love and I love uh, you, Chris. Yeah, man, we all do. Chris is amazing. And so are you, dude, but I do have to go, but yeah, dude, let's, let's, uh, let's get this going soon. Cause, uh, this was a really fun conversation. I guarantee people were having a good time listening. So, uh, let's, and, let's and make now this that there's a uh, uh, face of the name, like, uh, I'll make sure to grab your shirt tails next time I see you out at cool gigs. Yeah. Shout out to William Goldsmith, who, uh, I was able to finally meet you in person, hanging out with him and his, his amazing drum tech, Andrew King. Um, Andrew. We got to look at the Keplinger snare. His, I mean, that was so fun to to see William. He is uh, such a beautiful person. Yeah, fantastic human, fantastic drummer. Well, amen to that, man. I gotta go, but uh, let's, yeah, let let's talk soon, dude. Awesome. Thank you again. Much appreciated. All right, our little skinny one comes from Justin Mason, so I'm gonna read what he wrote. Hey Ben, it's Justin Mason out of North Alabama. I play drums for Nevermind the Damage, Brandon Henson, and regularly fill in for Mississippi Queen. I'm at drummerjm7 on Instagram. A song that influences me and just makes me want to jump on the drums anytime I hear it is Chameleon by David Barnes. The shuffle on the hi-hat throughout the song and just the ending lick is fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji. All right. Well, thank you, Justin. And here's Chameleon. And pieces on the ground all apart There's nothing that that boy won't do When it comes to you Chameleon, you know that it's wrong But it's fun to have someone you can pull along The way you treat that boy ain't fair but he don't care, no he don't What does it mean if you know you don't mean it? What does it say if you got nothing to say? Yeah. He's just your silly 
And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye! Big